Good morning. Welcome to Kahului Baptist Church, and we are very thankful to have you and to be in God's Word today. Before I get into the sermon, uh, I'd like to introduce and announce a very special visitor, first-time visitor that we have, second time actually now. I'm sorry, I'm scanning and looking for the child. Uh, they're gone already. Well, they went, they went out for a moment. Uh, Paxton, Easter Sunday, Paxton Tanaka. It's his first Sunday with us. Now, you may not know who Paxton is if you're visiting with us. It is Nick Tanaka who led us in singing and worship. Um, that's his son who was born two months early, had to be uh, emergency lifted to Oahu for two months. What is it? Two months? Nine weeks. Nine weeks early? Um, Ten weeks early, yeah, two and a half months early, and so uh, he was, he joined us last Sunday for the first time, so very much answered a prayer, yeah, go ahead, and, yeah. Um, very much an answer to prayer, so uh, if you see him and Lily and the mom, of course, congratulate them, as I'm sure many of you have, but don't touch him, don't touch him, no. Um, so today, the title of the sermon is the palace beautiful? The palace beautiful. That's the title of the sermon. We're taking a break from Revelation. Now, I know uh, you guys are like, man, I'm just getting back into the steam of Revelation. I love Revelation. We're in chapter uh, 14. We'll be coming up in chapter 14 this next what, four weeks from now. Um, so we're taking a little break, probably because you guys need time to process the Mark of the Beast and everything you've heard. So uh, if you missed a few, you have time to catch up on the sermons on the website uh, and then process it, and then we'll be jumping back in it around mid-May. But we're taking a break because breaks can be helpful as we address various subjects and uh, things in the culture at large and in the culture of our church that can be very helpful. So uh, the title of the sermon is The Palace Beautiful. Now, uh, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which you'll be hearing a little bit probably because I just saw the movie that came out on Easter and it reminded me of the beauties of the book. Uh, in The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, if you haven't read it, you should. Christian, the main character, it's an allegory of the Christian life. He, he, after he encounters the hill Calvary and his burden is loosed, he climbs up the hill called Difficulty, and he arrives at a palace called the Palace Beautiful. And in the book, the Palace Beautiful is a place that symbolizes the riches and delight of the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And, and in the Palace Beautiful, Christian is said to have found uh, rich encouragement, rich nourishing conversation, and beautiful and rare delicacies, nutrition uh, that he could not find anywhere else. And I just want you to see this morning that Paul, uh, John Bunyan and many others uh, have esteemed highly, have esteemed and held in high regards the bride of Christ, the local church, the palace beautiful, and that's how he writes it in his book. So we're going to be thinking of a very important topic this morning on the nature of the church the nature of the church. Now, that's a very broad and massive topic in and of itself. So we're going to narrow that down even more specifically to the role of members in the nature and role and life of the church. 
When we worked through 1 Timothy in chapter 3, we took a lot of time to think on elders and pastors and deacons, and and we've discussed a lot of that. And so now we're going to kind of shift and focus on the role of members in the life of the local church. Now, you may think, man, I picked the wrong Sunday to come. I don't want to hear about the nature of the local church. I have real problems, perhaps you might think that. Or you may say, conversely, why do we need to think about the nature of the church, this, this nitty-gritty stuff? I just All I want to do is just love people and make disciples. That's all I want to do. Why do we need to get into the, the granular detail of these things? Well, I want to encourage you to think about it like this. Anybody who competes at a high elite level of sports, if you ever compete, if you want to compete in an elite level of any sport, or if you're going to be considered like those special forces of the military, the elite special forces of our country, then you have to, you absolutely must pay attention to the things that can sabotage what you're aiming for. Things like form, structure, execution of that. If you're going to make a maximum impact, if you're going to perform at the highest level, you can't afford to ignore form and structure. Now, of course, if you just casually engage in a sport, basketball, football, cycling, tennis, if you just casually play, then yes, you can pick up a tennis racket and and go to the court and learn and play and have a good time in a very casual way. But if you want to have maximum impact, you have to address the little things, the little things. I used to ride Uh, I used to cycle on the road and ride a road bike and and ride long distances at a time. And and when you're riding long distances, you can do that on a bicycle that you just pull out of your garage. You can do it. But when you go length and distance, you have to pay attention to seat height, seat position. Uh, If you're too high, you're going to have too much pressure on your wrists, and they're going to hurt in a long ride. If you're you're too low, you're going to overextend various things and put too much power in your knees. You're going to have injuries and things of that nature. And so you really have to pay attention to form and structure. I don't know about you, but I don't want to take a casual approach to the bride of Christ. God certainly doesn't. I want KBC, by the grace of God, Kahului Baptist Church, to have maximum impact on this world for generations. I want to see sinners hear and understand and repent and profess faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to grow into mature, fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? And as such, beloved... If we are to have maximum impact in our families, in our communities, we can't overlook the nature and structure of the local church. I believe that many churches do overlook this vital aspect, and as a result, are greatly impeding the very thing they hope to accomplish, the advance of the gospel. Think about it like this. When you have two healthy, biblically-based churches, no matter the denomination, no matter the denomination, uh, Anglican, 
Presbyterian, non-denom word-based church, Baptist church, Lutheran, whatever it is. When you have those healthy churches side by side preaching the gospel, the differences are seemingly negligible. They would almost look the same. But when things go wrong, not if things go wrong, when things go wrong, when sin happens, when they deal with sin in the life of the church, then, then all of a sudden, the differences in those churches shine like the sun. How they respond and interact to sin, how they work redemptively in the life of an individual or the corporate body is massively put on display. Sometimes it's not always a pretty picture. So hear this, this is important. How a church handles sin struggles in its midst when they happen can make all the difference between gospel power and gospel paralysis. Now we like to talk about the church as a hospital for what? Sinners. And so it makes sense that when you have a hospital for sinners, that that is accurate that you'll have sinners come. And then sinners will do what? They will sin against each other. Now, yes, they're redeemed sinners with new natures and growing in conformity to Christ, yes. But sin will happen. And how a church handles that can make all the difference between gospel power and gospel paralysis. And they will be put on display at some point. So I assure you this is not an exercise in academia. This will impact the very fabric of your life for better or for worse. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we think on these things. Father in heaven, you are worthy of all glory and honor and dominion and majesty and authority. And you will be worshipped from now throughout the end of the age and ages and ages to come. And now we ask your help. Your Holy Spirit, would you please guide us into your truth, your word, to show its sufficiency for our lives, to show its sufficiency for our church. And may we build our lives and this church on the gospel proclamation. And Father, I do lift up Waihu community. I pray for uh, Chris Kamatsu as he proclaims your word there. Would you fill him with your spirit and may it land in power and may it be received in faith. And Lord, I also lift up our partner church, Kihei Baptist Chapel. I thank you for their partnership, for David Corson, Pastor Jay Armstrong, and the elders there. Would you build that church, build that community, and may they impact Kihei and that area greatly for the gospel. Would you encourage the saints and encourage the pastors and encourage us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number one, point number one, Matthew 16, the keys. Matthew 16, the keys. Now, you're going to get the Cliff Notes exposition today, all right? I'm going to move very rapidly. This is not a normative type of sermon for us, and so when we sometimes break and do topical types of studies, uh, it's just a little different. So you're going to get the Cliff Notes. So, So what's going on here in Matthew chapter 16 is Jesus has just rebuked the religious leaders of the day. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he had some very strong words for them because they demanded yet another sign, another miracle to testify to his heavenly origin. And he rebuked them and he said, you're only going to get one more sign, the sign of Jonah. And he was referring to the, his resurrection that was coming. Then he withdraws and he departs from them with his disciples and he wants to draw out his disciples' hearts. And he does that through two questions. And we could spend the whole morning on just one of these questions, but, but we're going to go fast, all right? So uh, these two questions, the first question is a famous question and you've heard it before. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Who do men say that the Son of Man is? That's actually a title uh, acknowledging his divinity. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to talk about that a ton, but sometimes you'll run across people who say Jesus didn't claim to be God. He did. This is a divine title, and he's acknowledging it on himself from Daniel chapter 7. And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? So who do men say that I am? And now who do you say that I am? Before I move on, and because we're going to talk about some, some kind of nitty-gritty details concerning uh, church and structure and authority, but before I move on, I just want you to know, if you're just joining us, or, or maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, really this question is fundamentally what we are all about. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's what the question that you're going to be held accountable for at Judgment Day. Who do you say that Jesus is? And how does your life reflect your answer? That's what we're all about here. That's the most pressing question of your entire life. And I hope that this morning that you will answer it the way Peter answered it. And if you don't know what that means, then please, I plead with you, come see me today. Come see me this week sometime. It doesn't have to be today. Maybe you're like, I have lunch. It's worth canceling your lunch plans for. But if you don't, come see me this week. Send me a text message, an email, a phone call, or anybody else in this church that you know, and say, hey, I need to know who Jesus is in my life, because that is really the fundamental question that will impact everything else. So Jesus asked his disciples. Peter gives an answer in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that answer, Jesus teaches us some very important truths about the church. Jesus is going to accept his answer. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is going to go on, and it's worth reading again this brief section. In verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so the first thing we see about this is that the church is built on the accurate proclamation of who Jesus is. Get that. The church of Jesus Christ, you've got to say this, is built on the accurate proclamation of who Jesus is. 
Every now and then you'll run across people also who will say, doctrine divides people. We shouldn't be stuck on doctrine or get kind of caught up in these things. Let's just love God and love people. It's that simple. But beloved, Jesus, hear the words of Jesus here. Acknowledging that his church will be built on true teaching about who he is. That's worth a whole sermon by itself. Again, we're moving on. Second thing we notice is that Jesus takes ownership of the church. Upon this accurate confession of truth, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. My church. Whose church is this? This is God's church, and I hope you don't think I'm talking about this building structure, right? This is the meeting house. This is the meeting house. This isn't the church. This is just a a building that'll burn up one day when Jesus comes, Uh, but this, you are the church, and upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. You are God's people. You're not Pastor Randy's sheep. You're not any, uh, you are God's sheep. He knows every one of you by name. He knows the hair on your head. He knows the extent and breadth of your life. He takes ownership of his church, personal ownership of his people. I'm going to make a a statement, and you're welcome to wrestle with me. I challenge you to wrestle with me, actually, if you disagree. It is virtually impossible to overstate the centrality of the church in the New Testament. There it is. It is virtually impossible. It is, impo- it, it is possible, but it is virtually impossible to overstate the centrality of the church in the New Testament. Jesus died for the church. He sent his beloved son for the church. He lives for the church. He's considered the head of the church. He calls it the building of God, his family, his brothers and sisters, his sons and daughters. And describing the church, the palace beautiful, he reserves, God reserves the most strong relational terms when he terms it the bride of Christ. When he calls us sons and daughters of God, he considers us his family. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers in the congregation, Hebrews says. He's coming back for his church. When Saul, the great persecutor of the church, was inflicting pain, Jesus revealed to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see how intrinsically he is identified with his body. This is why it's almost impossible to overstate its importance. Revelation, as we've seen, shows us the the picture of the the Son of Man who walks among the lampstands, Revelation chapter 1. You know what's fascinating about this? We go on and on and on. Not one of these pictures is individualistic. Think about that. Not one of these pictures is individualistic. In other words, we talk about our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. It's just not enough. It's not complete. 
Your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is intrinsically bound to others who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they come together in this entity called the church. These are all corporate, plural pictures. Here's a little bit of application for you this morning to consider. Casual, free agent Christians who just kind of float around from place to place, either when they're offended or want to go church shopping is foreign to the New Testament. That is a foreign concept to the New Testament. I don't think people intentionally do this. I think there's so much lack of clarity on the nature of the local church that we just do what seems the culture does at large. But consider this your teaching. Jesus loves his bride. He's coming back for her, and you should love her too. Eventually, we get to verse 19, where Jesus says he will give the keys of the kingdom to Peter for binding and for loosing. Now, that is a term from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 22, and it just builds on more, and I don't have time to get into all the particulars of that, but it's going to show up again in Matthew 18. It's also going to show up in John 20. Let's read Matthew 18. This is two chapters later. Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There it is again. John 20, verse 23. We have a little bit of a similar take on this. John 20, verse 23. Post-resurrection. Jesus says this to his disciples. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Interesting. Have you ever thought about that? We often think about the things Jesus said on the cross. What about what he said after? We only have a little bit of time, and he says very important things, necessary things for the church to be built on. So we can say from these passages and the context, the binding and loosing associated with the keys of the kingdom is clearly dealing with sin issues, is dealing with sin issues. Matthew 18 is all about confronting a brother who is in sin Now, there's a huge question on this. I'm not going to entertain it this morning, not because I can't. I really want to. Uh, I don't have time. I just simply don't have time to give it a just treatment. But there's a huge question on to whom are the keys given? Our Roman Catholic neighbors down the street would contend that... In giving them to Peter, Jesus is establishing a pope type of figure who would reign in succession over the church until his next return. I would say that is the most, probably one of the most divisive statements in the history of the church. The claim of papal supremacy causes more division in the church than any other singular teaching. We don't have time to address that. So to whom are the keys given? Of course, Peter, 
yes, in this immediate context, but is this, again, intending to show Peter as a pope type of figure, or is Peter here representative of the apostles in the church that would be built on top of them? What Ephesians 2 describes as the foundation of the apostles and prophets. One pastor, I think, captured this well, and he has observed, I'm going to quote, here's what he says, I quote, Whoever has the keys can do what Jesus did with Peter in Matthew 16. Think about that. Whoever has the keys can do what Jesus did with Peter. He can listen to a gospel profession, listens to a gospel profession, and publicly affirm or deny that an individual's profession is from the Father who is in heaven. Think about that. Whoever has those keys of the kingdom can hear a gospel profession, just like Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And can either affirm or deny that that profession is from the Father who is in heaven. Matthew 18 expands this slightly, and he helps us to see that the holder of the keys, whoever has those keys, should do this in part by considering whether or not a person is repentant. The authority of the keys, in other words, is about affirming right gospel words and a right gospel life. Close quote. I'll say that last part again. The authority of the keys is about affirming right gospel words and right gospel life, or we could say doctrine and discipline. So we still have our outstanding question. If that's what the keys are and do, I think most would agree with that. That's what they are and do. Who has the responsibility for it? Who has it? Who has it? Who has that authority? And how you answer that question, this is just for your understanding the world around us, how you answer that key question. Like I said, very few people would dispute that that's what the keys mean. How you answer that question as to who has them will make the difference between, in part, will make the difference between whether you're Presbyterian, between whether you're a more bishop type of structure, Episcopalian, Anglican, Catholic, Lutheran, congregational, right? Where, which way you go on that, that's part, in, in part, what distinguishes these types of governance. Now, I want you to think about that. We would contend, and I think convincingly so, but of course my Presbyterian brothers and sisters and Anglican brothers and sisters would push back on me, and I, and I take that gladly. But we would contend, and I think uh, it does hold up to exegesis and the rule of faith, that Matthew 18 ultimately shows, and the rest of the New Testament, that it is a church who has that responsibility, the ecclesia, the gathered assembly of believers. Wow. Think about that. What I just said, beloved, is that Matthew 18 extends those keys not to me, not to the church's pastors, but to who? To you. The authority to affirm gospel professions and gospel practice is yours. Do you ever think about that? It's yours. 
If that is correct, then you have every reason to ponder what are these keys and how do I use them well and in the way God designed us to. When you vote yes for a membership of an individual to the church, so I do this, I, you know, hey, you know, John Doe, stand up, and, and I'm presenting them for members as uh, covenant members of Kahului Baptist Church. Let me know by an I, and their, their names are in the website, in the bulletin for a period of time before, and I do member orientations with them, and I'm, this is what I'm doing. I'm saying, in essence, I have examined their profession of faith, their confession of faith and life with the, all the, the limited abilities that I have, and I am presenting them to you, and you are going to do the same. Whoa. That's an incredible and weighty task. A beautiful task. A necessary task to commend and clarify and guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to number two. So that's the keys. Number two, the congregation. The congregation. So let's see how this unfolds in the Bible, shall we? Let's see how does this play out in the New Testament. I want to look at a few distinct ways in which these keys are wielded in membership, discipline, doctrine, and leadership. We're going to look at four ways. Membership, discipline, doctrine, and leadership. For context, many non, as I said, many non-congregational churches, most Baptist churches, not all, but most Baptist churches tend to be congregational churches, and there are other congregational churches that are not Baptist, and it all flows from this idea here. But most Baptist churches tend to be congregational, which means you have authority. Non-congregational churches, we might call them Baptistic, some of them in doctrine, um, and like I mentioned, a bunch of other denominations, they tend to read these keys as being in the hands of the pastors, the elders, or some other form of church authority, but not the church. And so let's talk about this concept of membership. Now, when we talk about membership, this gets some people kind of concerned. I mean, doesn't that sound exclusive? We don't, we don't want to exclude people from our church. We don't, we don't want people to feel unwelcomed here. God forbid that, that they should feel like they're on the outside of something. And that's what membership seems to convey for many people. I think if you read the New Testament, this is exactly how the church unfolds in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and it says this, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. What does that show us? There was an understanding of who the church was and who the church was not in the book of Acts. There was a them and a not them. You see this every day in our culture. Every day, or maybe not all of you, uh, every day, maybe once or twice a week, when you fill up gas, think about it, when you fill up gas, who gets gas at Costco in here? Like everybody, right? <laughs> Almost everybody. If you go to Costco and you get gas, there's a red placard on the gas pump, and it says in big, lead, uh, big white lettering, for members only. 
and yet the line is out of the parking lot to get gas, which shows us ex there is uh, exclusivity in reaching the lost are not at odds with one another, are they? There is a clear distinction and understanding of who was and was not a part of the church in the community in Acts chapter 5. We also see in Acts chapter 2 that somebody is keeping records, Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so what you find throughout Acts is that somebody is keeping records. Because it keeps saying, and there were numbers added to them daily, added to them daily. And you see this expanded uh, number again and again from 3,000 to 5,000 to more and more. And it just adds. The point is, the church in the New Testament is not just a nebulous cloud of amorphous people who just kind of come and go that you can't clearly identify. They're present. They're there. They can be logged and counted and recorded and written for our sake. There is a clear distinction between who is in that community and who is out of that community. That's membership. We could go on and on in that, but we'll examine that through its converse of discipline. Now, of course, we know Matthew 18. We've spoken about that several times. Uh, that's an example of discipline in the life of the body, but we see that actually unfolded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you remember, 1 Corinthians, Corinth was that really messed up church, and everybody's all divided and all sorts of things like that, right? They're just really divided, and Paul's writing a letter to try and bring some order and correction to the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a man who is taking his, there's children present, so, all uh, right, you, you know the story, uh, who is taking his father's wife and boasting about it. Paul is very, needless to say, concerned about that situation. And he says to them in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, that they should have already put him out. He says this, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And for the rest of that chapter, Paul's going to repeat that idea. He needs to be removed, put out from you. For the rest of the chapter, all of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is about that. Have you ever thought about that? One of the things, there's a lot of pros to the daily Bible verse that kind of just comes to your app and it just kind of, poop, there it is. That's my daily Bible verse. There's a lot of pros to that. Don't, I don't want to hit that too hard, but, but sometimes what it can do is it can, uh, we, can get, we can think of the Bible, the New Testament, as just a compilation of wisdom sayings. Love God, work hard with all your might. Be encouraged, encourage others, right? They normally pull those like kind of little nuggets out of there. And when we read it in this kind of disconnected form, we don't see that these verses fall in passages that are addressing real people and real situations and real struggles. And when we read it straight through, book by book, passage by passage, verse by verse, we run into things like this that, that would never pop up on your daily Bible app. Imagine that, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. What? Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, right? You're fired at work or whatever. Clearly, in this context, Paul is pleading 
with not just the elders, but with the entire church. In Corinth. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, because you might think, wow, they actually put somebody out of the church. They did. For unrepentant sin, they, they put him out. Why? Because it blasphemed the name of God. It was inconsistent with one who professes faith. And so they did this. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this person repented. Apparently he repented. Praise God. That's what we always want. Restoration. And so now Paul is pleading with the church as a whole to receive him back. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 and following, if you want to read about that later. He's pleading with them, receive him. Reaffirm your love for them. So it's worth thinking out. If someone can be put out of a community of faith, does it not stand to reason that there's a way for them to be considered in this community of faith that is clear and recognizable? Beloved, this is membership in the New Testament. I would suggest that the commands of the New Testament do not make very much sense apart from life in a local gathering of believers what we call membership. So that's membership and discipline. You see the keys exercised or wielded there. You also see them in doctrine, right? I said it was a profession of faith, affirming proper faith in an individual. Uh, so that's doctrine as well and practice. That would be the discipline part of it. The church, you, have the role of testing doctrine, of selecting leaders throughout the New Testament. We see this time and time again, that that responsibility falls to the church. The church. In Galatians 1, Paul chastises the church, not the elders, for entertaining false doctrine. Why would he chastise the church, not the elders? Don't the elders have a role in this? Yes, yes, they do. But it's because the expectation is that the church, that you, will be like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17, who search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. That's your role, KBC. That when I preach or anybody preaches, that you wouldn't just receive it as, as a mindless drone passively, yes, tell me, download, right? But that you would search the scriptures and, and see whether these things are so. That's the expectation of members in the gathered body. Apparently the church in Galatia didn't do that, and they were paying a steep cost for their failure to discern. So we see doctrine falls on the church. Leadership, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Many consider these to be the first deacons, or that would later develop into the office of the deacon. And, and they, they summon together the whole church to address the problem of widows who aren't being fed, a very practical, nitty-gritty detail. And here the apostles gather together with the church, and they say, Therefore, brothers, Acts 6, 3, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You see? Pick out from among you. You brothers, you all gathered here. Give us seven people, full of Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint. We just practice this. We're doing this right now in the life of our church with deacons. We've asked you guys, pick out from among yourselves. 
Actually, it was seven people. <laughs> seven people full of the spirits whom we will appoint to this duty. Acts 14.23, we see about elders who are appointed in Paul's previous church plants. And here's what it says. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they had appointed elders for them. Now, that's really interesting because that Greek word appoint literally means to stretch out the hand as an agreement with a motion. You ever thought about, man, why do we do motions and, and we ask you guys to vote on things? It goes back to this. They had appointed, they stretched out their hand to accept a motion. Why? Because this is the practical mechanism through which the congregation's authority is exercised. So the church is responsible to select its leaders and it's responsible to, get this, you're going to like this, to submit to the leaders they select, which is why this process is a weighty process. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you do have to appoint your leaders, and then you have to submit to the leaders whom you appoint. So appoint good leaders. Amen? Now, we're not going to talk about the role of pastors today, but suffice it to say that pastors lead the church in exercising these keys. When this functions well, so get this, when this functions well, the church and her leaders are best described as gospel partners. The church and her leaders, when this works well, are best described as partners, mutually dependent on one another to be and do everything God calls us to. That's exactly why Paul says to the Philippians, and he refers to them as his partners in the gospel from the first day until now. So in general, a church, you, would want to affirm, submit, and obey her leaders and mainly use their authority as a uh, break-in case of emergency, a veto, emergency veto, so to speak, in the case of sin or erroneous teaching. Now, I've said a lot. If this is true, if you have the keys for, for membership, for discipline, for leadership, for doctrine, I want you to think about that for a second. Think about all those other churches I mentioned. What church structure, Presbyterian, that, that gives the authority to a, a group of ruling elders or, or a mixture of a hybrid, there's all kind of different things, ruling elders or uh, Anglican that, that puts that authority in the bishop's hand? That would be, that would include Roman Catholic and Episcopalian, all very similar forms of structure. Uh, all these types of areas, there's all kind of other structures as well. Uh, those are the main ones. If if that's the case, which of those structures gives more than a passing nod to the authority of the body, to the priesthood of the believer, that we would call it? And the answer is none of them. Give more than a passing nod to the role of the members, except for a congregational form of governance. Now, hear me say this. If you're here from a different uh, denomination visiting, I don't know, uh, I don't know who all is in here, but let me, let me say this. I respect 
my brothers and sisters in those other positions very highly. I have great respect for other traditions of Christian faith and practices, uh, probably more, although I can't speak for all of you, probably more than most all of you, having studied them and how they work and their kind of intricacies, I have great admiration for them. I, I totally get why they land there. So don't, don't hear me taking a hit at them. I'm merely trying to explain some of these differences for you to understand and then let you know why we do things the way we do things. You see, but I do believe that they fall short in this area. And in so doing, I do believe at times they confuse the gospel outworking and impede the very thing we all want, which is the advance of the gospel in this world. This, beloved, is why we cannot take a casual approach to the church. You can't do it. The gospel saves you and places you into a body, into the body of Christ where you have brothers and sisters who you need and they need you. You need them to practice the one another's of Scripture. You need them to stir you up to love and good deeds. You need them to bear your burdens and you to bear theirs. And so we get to the command and the clarity, the final two points, and they will be quick. The command, if all this is true, then all of a sudden Hebrews 10 makes a lot of sense. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's not a period after that. It's not a period, that's a comma. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works Hear the correlation, the connecting, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Isn't it so interesting that, that the idea of stirring up one another to love and good works is, is immediately connected to not neglecting to meet together? Isn't that fascinating? Beloved, value the various gatherings of the body of Christ. Value Sunday morning gatherings and worship. Value your small groups. Value Sunday school. And when you meet together, when you meet together, it is a very biblical, good, and godly thing. So I want to challenge two groups of people in here this morning. If you are not a member, if you're a Christian, but you are not a member of a local church, join a church somewhere. Join a church somewhere. I prepare a meal, you could say, a, a, a soul, a meal for the soul every Sunday. Uh, I encourage you to eat here if you don't find a place. Uh, join here, set, set your anchor here. But ultimately, I just care that you're eating. Go somewhere that you are in agreement with the mission, the vision, the purpose, the doctrine, and that is preaching the gospel. Heaven forbid you go somewhere that... that conforms a teaching to what you like, right? But go somewhere that preaches the gospel and set anchor there and plug in and serve as a member of the bride of Christ and love that bride. Now, what keeps people from doing this often is painful past experiences, either abusive or hurtful. So I want to give a nod to that, at how painful that can be, but don't let that stop you from doing what God commands. We'd love to work with you through that hurt, 
through it so that you can deal with it, move past it, and joyfully follow Jesus and re-engage his bride. We should not think it small to exist apart from the bride of Christ. So find a church home. Secondly, for those who are a part of a church family, who are a part of the church body, especially if you consider yourself a member, hear this, not from Pastor Randy, but from the Lord Jesus Christ, and love this group of people around you. Love them with your time. Love them with your talents. Love them with your resources, with your tongue, and really press into one another and love each other well. And number four, clarity, the clarity. When we realize that this weighty, beautiful plan that God has has been entrusted to the church to advance the gospel, and we truly play our part, then when we gather together, we say like, Paul, uh, like Peter, the apostle, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and the gospel subsequently is commended such that in time we realize and say, like John Bunyan, that this, this is the palace beautiful where I find rare and delicious delicacies. Let me close with a quote from none other than, of course, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. I named my third child after him. His name is Haddon. Spurgeon said this about the church. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. Think about that. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I found a perfect church, I would have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. As imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Let us pray. Father, Paul, your apostle, said that he was being poured out like a drink offering for the gospel and the church. He had suffered many hardships, daily anxious about the welfare of your bride. May we be the same. May we love this diverse group of people that you died to save because you love them and you love us. Help us, Father, to live well, to exercise uh, skillfully and biblically the keys of the kingdom as members of the body of Christ. And if there are any here who don't know who you are, would you draw them this morning? If there are any here who don't have a church family, would you stir them up to join here or somewhere else? And we thank you, Father, for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.